0: Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities Podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. Please enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Veal with the AppsChat Capable Communities podcast. And today, we're going to be talking about developing and managing human capital. Uh, I feel very lucky. Today in the studio, I've got six guests, uh, the most guests we've ever had. Uh, we just uh, pre-funked a little bit, not, uh, not any drinking or anything, but we had, uh, had some lunch, and that was good. Got to know each other a little bit. But uh, we're excited to launch into it. But I'm going to let each of the guests introduce themselves briefly. And uh, first, I have Steve
1: Kubacki. Hi, I'm uh, Steve Kabacki. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I'm in the process of developing two apps. Uh, One uh, is a guided meditation app uh, that focuses on a mind-body healing, and then uh, another app on dating.
2: Oh, hi. My name is Andrea Cremese. I'm a software engineer at Smartsheet, which is a SaaS business based here in Bellevue. I recently conducted a body of research for my MBA dissertation uh, looking into motivation and psychological contract for software engineers here in the area, in the Pacific Northwest.
3: This is Joe Oconic. I'm a business development and strategy consultant. I've got over 30 years of general management experience uh, domestically and internationally, and have helped with uh, over 12 startup businesses.
4: Hi, my name is Afta Faruki, and I'm the president of Inabia Software and Consulting. We provide solution and telecom architecture work, and you can find me on my LinkedIn, Afta Faruqi.
5: Hi, my name is Lee Carter. I am a uh, IT consulting and professional services um, executive. I've been working in the industry for about 12 years now, and uh, staffing is a major component of what we do. So that's one of the reasons Eric has asked me to join.
6: And I'm Rachel Alexandria. I'm a leadership and power guide. My background was as a clinical psychotherapist and I have a specialty in conflict management and resolution. You can find me at rachelalexandria.com.
0: So welcome everybody. Uh, It's great to have everybody here and uh, as I mentioned so this episode is going to be about developing and managing human capital and we'll get into more details soon. All right, we're back, and we're talking today about uh, managing and developing human resources, human capital. Uh, I've had conversations with people about the idea of human capital. They don't like to be called capital. It sounds like cattle. Uh, just a quick aside there. But the next conversation we wanted to have uh, is about organizations in crisis and people in crisis. And uh, in some of our, our previous dialogues, uh, we noted that that uh, basically people have a very different Temper, perhaps, uh, when they're under stress or in crisis. And uh, Joe O'Konic, who I'm to whom I'm going to hand it over next, he has some interesting ideas about uh, how organizations should consider people behaving in crisis as a key aspect of
1: management.
3: Thanks. Um, I want to kick this off, and again, my background has to do with. Uh, uh, about 30 years in general management and involved with startup companies and, and transformations at organizations. And when you start working between the company's vision, values, and then you put it into the practical aspect of a performance system in a side of a company, you end up, you know, what are you going to measure? What results are you looking for? And then you task managers typically at some point to start stack ranking their employees in terms of who's uh, who at the highest Level of water. A L- little fall. bit of water, We're water falling there. i talking about crisis. The show must go uh, on. The water the in, is not So there's Joe's studio. opportunity to yeah, talk so under a, crisis. Yeah, we have a crisis here. <laughs> Actually, no, the floor is still dry, everyone. Um, but interesting, and one of my perspectives comes from my experience uh, in the United States Marine Corps, which is part of the process of an employee review every time you do it, not just stack ranking their performance in business as usual or in the Marine Corps uh, peacetime, but which people on your team do you want with you when you go to war, and when you translate that into the business is, you know when you know when there's crisis and there's an economic downturn, when a competitor launches a product that you didn't see, um, in none of the performance systems that I've seen and I have implemented a couple where we did add this back in to ask people to coach, develop for skill sets during crisis. So I'd like to hear what everyone else thinks about that, and I think it's what we face all the time in business.
2: I. Uh i've got some experience in those terms in terms of very reactive business in uh, very conducting very active business in preparing and responding to other um, other players in the same market and uh, i think it's it's something that'll be it's something that'll be very interesting if if it was possible i'm more wondering and i'm thinking back at those experiences for example when you're when you're trying to put in and try to win some sort of very large, multi-tens of billions of dollars uh, or millions of dollars worth of project, uh, if you have the time to actually stop uh, uh, and actually think about collecting the data that would inform that decision in the first place, at that point, it's just go, go, go. And then at the end of it, if we come out winning, okay, otherwise we we used to do, at least do a post-mortem on why did we lose this large business. But it was very hard to actually pinpoint to a specific personal level because of the rush that that situation uh, uh, um, uh, had. It was more on a personal level. Yeah, Andrea was good at managing that project under pressure. We were, we were trying to beat the other competitor, and we won the business. Or yeah, he wasn't a good player. He waited three hours to respond on an email, and now the customer is gone.
6: This is um, part of what I I actually teach people on the individual level, and part of what I've written about in my book, um, that a lot of times people have their default way of being in the world, their default way of communicating, and I identified four different dials of strategic communication. And people tend to have their dial set just like you dial your radio, right? You set the, the bass and the tenor and the volume and you tend to keep it at the same dial and you don't think about when a different song comes on, is it going to sound differently? Am I going to behave, be able to behave differently when that when that shift in circumstance arises? I think this is one of the reasons why bringing meditation into business practices is so important because it gives people this time to stop and reassess and reset how they're responding? We get so used to just responding, 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 and not considering how, like, do I need to adapt to this circumstance?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I meditation I think is a really good thing for businesses to practice. Obviously, I think we've all heard that Google has uh, sort of some on on the spot uh, meditator that helps people with you know group meditation. Uh, I, I think the, one of the issues. Um, that we're having uh, that might be worth looking at in terms of crisis is when there's sort of perpetual conflict uh, in, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies where everybody, it's everyone is in crisis, you're lurching from one crisis to the next crisis, uh, and it almost creates a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, kind of uh, feeling for everybody so that people get burned out. Uh, and are unable really to perform their jobs. Um, I, I think we all know a lot of companies where, you know, things are kind of undermanned or underpersoned. Uh, there's not enough people, not enough resources, uh, and yeah, that's all to make you know to reduce costs. But one of the issues is is you know when people are under constant stress, and crisis, um, you know, they begin to break down and they don't work as productively or as efficiently.
5: You know, and you kind of mentioned the. Uh the the point about people lurching from one crisis to a next. Um, every crisis is unique. So you know how how can you develop a framework within your organization where people are enabled and empowered to actually deal with crisis and to also kind of standardize the way in which they do so um you know a burning building to me and a burning building to you are going to be responded to in different ways we're both going to want to you know run and duck for cover but you've got to face the situation at some point so
6: well and what i what i noticed too is how often is it really a crisis you know most things that we think are crises are not crises i mean business is in competition all of the time right so Every time you're you're thinking about competitors coming in or uh, any particular issue that your business is facing, it's it's rarely that, you know, the FBI is storming your doors and you need to shred the documents right this minute or something like like there's actual crises and then there's just sort of moments of more intensity and less intensity and I think when we start thinking about it that way, you know, on an individual level and then from a management level. It becomes easier to flow with. When do we turn the intensity up? When do we turn it down?
1: Uh, and a, you know, the opposite of crisis is boredom. Uh, we haven't spoken about that yet, but I think that's also an issue that plagues a lot of companies and a lot of employees. Is uh, that they're not in enough crisis. There's not enough conflict. There's not enough going on. Uh, you know, they're just sort of bored out of their minds, and you know, and they, they just. And, and of course, that obviously has a lot of effect on productivity I don't and efficiency. Know if I agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I think there are a <laughs> lot. I've worked with people uh, who, you know, are kind of bored with what they do and kind of go along with what's happening.
6: But is the only other alternative crisis? It's I the know.
0: opposite. I hope not not I the only other alternative. It's okay. the extreme on okay. the end.
4: So I, uh, go ahead. Oh no, I wanted to go
2: back to one of. The, I think that the, the initial remark that Joe's made, which is not necessarily how we respond. If I understand it correctly, not necessarily how we respond, but how do we gauge the way that our resource, for lack of a better term, I mean, I hate I hate the term human resources. Well, it makes me think of a, of a of an excavator. So how the people, the people that working with that work with us, so how we gauge the response, and I, I wanted to add a. Um, uh, uh, a point to that, which is, I, I recently conducted a, a, a body of research, speaking with a, a few engineering managers here in the Pacific Northwest, and some of them actually told me that they're moving away from traditional performance reviews and goal setting, because they found it uh, uh, slow in in the sense that, okay, we set a goal with a person with a, with, with with an engineer, and he or she goes on, but then on. In a couple of weeks' time, that already becomes obsolete. And there is so much overhead in keeping those goals or keeping those uh, uh, um, performances up to date that either they become so broad that it's they are not really analytic. We, you, you can't really say if they've been hit or not. Or they become so burdensome that the overhead to deal with that is is so hard. So I, I just wanted to mention that in some cases in the tech industry, there's actually a move away from either gauging the business as usual and uh, gauging the performance is more done on a tactical
3: level, on a day-to-day level, how many points we're delivering, or on one-to-ones. So, so I want to uh, respond to that a little bit because I absolutely view that there's two things you know fundamentally flawed with our current performance systems in most companies, and that's we put performance which is results, which lead all the way up to, to the corporation achieve its goals from how did you perform your job? Which is, you know, how how did you work? You look at the company values, you know, were you customer focused? Were you this? Were you that? And most companies lump those into the same activity and then people become so performance oriented to say, I met all of my objectives, why are you giving me a, a, a lower rating? And it's because it's on the how side of things. And so I've, again, been a proponent where we actually separated the uh, annual performance reviews for the adjustments of salary based on the how from the bonus payments based on, you know, you as an objective, you get your bonus, but how you're doing it? That's different. I think the other aspect of this is identifying it from the skill set, and we talked a little bit earlier about this. There's not a large organization that doesn't use some kind of a behavioral or psychological analysis, and pick your flavor. There's lots of companies. Some of them include uh, the aspect of how does this person behave under stress, okay? And and that acknowledgement of that and a manager understanding, looking at his team or her team and saying, okay, these people, I know that when it gets really stressful, this is the behavior I'm going to see, and if you know other people, so that you can actually help them develop the skill sets to deal with stress. Because stress will come to the job place, whether it's an outside force or an inside force. So I think that this is this is the point I'm trying to understand. The 21st century people management, uh, you know, leadership results in us having to understand what our skill sets are, what comes easy, what comes natural, and then to either neutralize those that need to be developed because we not everyone is going to be great in crisis but we at least need to make sure they don't add to the crisis okay and that's you know a lot of managers are not at all prepared to have that skill set or capability
6: in fact most people are what are creating the crisis most of the time you know it's it's coming from that interpersonal conflict and that that sort of response thing it's what is what's the saying i'm not going to think of it in this moment but it's not so much life isn't so much what happens to you it's how you respond to it
4: And sometime, uh, I don't know how to measure the crisis. Sometime, you know, like one of the key person in the organization has some problem, personal problem, and coming to the work and start talking about their problem to the other employees and, you know, and then happened one day, then happened the next day, and the next day, and the next day, Uh, then people come and start complaining about that person. Now... I don't know if really the crisis now, automatically crisis created, right? And then because of this person, the organization cannot let go of this person because it's very important, but the other person quit. Now organization came into the, the, uh, the crisis. A lot of times it's tough to
5: actually figure out the severity of the crisis until you're kind of breaking things down on the back end of it. Um, so I, I totally understand where you're coming from there.
0: Yeah, there, there's a definition and analytical part of it, I think. I'm not, I'm not saying this is exactly how it works, but maybe if somebody does have a cool head, they'll be more analytical about it and try to understand the issue and its severity and basically do a triage type of thing. I've seen that in organizations and customer support organizations. Oftentimes the tier one's job is basically understand the problem. And I've, I've even seen an organizational behavior recently where... Um, if the opportunity is of a particular size, say this is like a customer support thing and the, and the customer is asking for something above and beyond what is typically done, it, it wouldn't maybe be in within our job description per se, but there's an opportunity to delight the customer. And so I, what I've seen is some people would basically be good at saying no and just say, oh, well, we don't do that or that's another department or what have you. Point being that... Um, individuals taking on work that's outside of their scope is back to this this uh this uh risk thing and and to the point about or maybe that Rachel made about about individuals creating crises is creative individuals probably wanna serve their customers and and take on work that's not necessarily within the scope but the, it's back to this this authorization question of do you want to encourage that behavior? How do you manage innovations or issues or risks that are outside outside the basic scope?
6: I know we're like, we're gonna go, <laughs> go ahead.
1: Uh, you know, assessing um, different kinds of uh, skills and employees, I think is pretty difficult, uh, especially in terms of assessing their ability to deal with stress and leadership. Uh, and I, I think there's a tendency, to use these uh, these assessment materials, uh, rather than helping people, and that's what they should be used. I mean, you know, they should be used to help people grow and develop and understand one another. But oftentimes, I think they're used in order to actually pigeonhole people and put them in little boxes, um, and to say, well, you're not a leadership type, you're not a crisis person. And one of the things we know, and there are many different kinds of personalities uh, and many different kinds of traits, uh, you know, that uh, that could make a good leader, that could enable someone to handle a crisis situation. So I, I think these are all well-meaning uh, a lot of what goes on in terms of uh, uh, behavioral assessments and personality assessments in the workplace. But I find oftentimes uh, that, you know, they're, they're oftentimes laughed at. I mean, I know a lot of employees that say, oh, going to another personality workshop. I mean, you know, what a bunch of nonsense. And because nobody ever listens to it. And all we know is that, you know, I'm just going to get pigeonholed as kind of a quiet person. And if I'm a quiet person, then how could I ever be a leader? And if I can't be a leader, how am I ever going to make money? And this is what goes <laughs> On, I mean, this is what goes. On. I mean, we have to realize that yeah. you know there's a hyper-competitive nature in a lot of these businesses, uh, and that people have you know their own agendas at work in terms of maintaining their status, their power, uh, their little compartmentalized uh, uh, you know work. Uh, okay, so go on next. In terms
6: <laughs> of looking for solutions around that, I, I actually. What you said and and what you were just saying a minute ago, Eric, what, what struck me was the word analytical, somebody with a cool head who can be analytical. And I actually want to add empathetic because when you talk about delighting customers, you know, when you talk about people who want, who don't want to just pigeonhole their employees, but actually want to help them rise and succeed, you're talking about empathy. You're talking about the ability to understand people from different Uh, different ways of being and see how they can succeed in their path, not just, you know, the typical way. So, so a lot of times analysis in terms of looking at crisis is helpful, but it's only part of the picture. You need empathy. Also empathy is what calms people down, you know, when they're, when they're actually having an intense reaction, empathizing, is what actually will take that trigger down a number of notches.
3: I want to re- reply to what Steve was saying. And I couldn't agree more, uh, Steve. I remember when I had to do the Myers-Briggs you know, mid-stage of my career, and if I, it wasn't an ENTP, I knew that I was going nowhere because every single executive in the company was. And, and I don't like Myers-Briggs, and I'm not It's, it's a
6: very
1: psychometrically. It's actually a very bad test. It's,
3: it's, it's, it's not good for the workplace. All the of
6: workplace. psychology repudiates yeah, the Myers-Briggs.
3: So, But I'm... okay. That's my point. A lot of organizations use bad tools, you know. So if you have the wrong tool and try to apply it to every situation, you're going to be in trouble. That said, I was going back to what Eric was saying: is that you know some of these uh, tools, and if you have management who is well trained and embraces this, if it's actually part of the culture, and you know I'm I'm living proof with some organizations where we were able to implement that because it became part. Of the conversation, it became part of the culture. It became part of how you talked inside the organization, so people didn't laugh at it. You know, it was actually very useful. But it can't be like you know. I think you were t- mentioning Eric. you said, "Well, oh, we had this. They, my, now this tells my leadership profile." But again, if it's not totally implemented and integrated, then it's just checking the box de jour of oh, that's the HR thing. Now we better have a, some kind of a psychoanalytical assessment, and we did that. So, um, you know this all comes back to you know what drives top performing organizations in business as usual mode or whatever the crisis may be, external, internal, you know it's about you know you know culture.
1: yeah, I think you know empathy is uh, you know that'd be great if that could be developed in the workplace and you know, if uh, executives could be trained in that. but unfortunately, you know there's a number of people in positions of power who are executives who really have very little empathy or none. Uh, they may be charming narcissists. They may convince other people that they have empathy,, uh, but they'll you know stab you in the back as as soon as it's in the, in their interest to do so. and And so you know I, I think it'd be very interesting if we could develop if companies would actually develop instruments to Figure out who these people are. Who are these predators? Who are the sociopaths? Uh, and and you know and basically you know the, most of the times these people are un, unredeemable. Um, you know they you, you're not going to change them. You're not going to help they're them all be more members. Yeah. No. 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 They're, I don't know. Yeah, but I think it would know, make for a and they better. They don't care. They're right, looking right, for right, quarterly right. profits. Come but it would make for a better organization if we could figure out who these unfortunately if they're the owners
6: <laughs> well this you know, is sort of the situation I mean, this is where problematic. We're, we're learning as the um, larger amount of the populace how to rise up against people who are Bogarding the power and lacking empathy for the rest of us.
2: Yeah, but it's not in my mind at least. It's not a long. Uh, you're not gonna have a long uh, 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 trajectory as a business. Now let's talk. Let's. I'm gonna skirt away from any uh, other uh, subject. But in terms of business, I don't think it's a long-term uh, uh, um, business proposition to be that sort of sharky or that sort of, uh, at least intact, that sort of uh, cutthroat 1980s Theory X uh, uh,
1: kind of leader. I sort of those disagree those with you. I mean, yeah, who, do you think I runs, who do you think runs this country? Who do you think <laughs> runs what Literally, goes on in the world most <laughs> yeah. of the time? Okay, it's not nice people. Okay, I'm sorry, problem. but it isn't. Well, I mean, yeah, there's some, I think founders are very interesting because, for me, founders—you get a wide scope of personality with finders. You, founders. You founders—they could be, you know, they could be sociopaths, but they can also be very nice people. They can be very innovators. Uh, I, I, you know, it's a—it's a mixed bag there. But I mean, yeah, I mean, okay.
2: Honestly, in—in in my field, in technology, at least, probably because there's hyper-competition for talent and there's hyper-competition for product. Uh, a failure mode analysis of that will be that your best engineers will move across the road to either Seattle or to another to another firm, and you're gonna stop having innovation, and your product will start to not sell anymore. So, again, I wanna skirt away from any <laughs> anything else that is not business. I don't wanna get well, involved in anything else.
1: I mean, I I have I am I'm a clinical psychologist. I have lots of people who come see me. Like for example, from. Uh, who are just completely stressed out because they're dealing with managers and executives uh, who are borderline, who are personality disordered or who are kind of sociopathic and narcissistic. I think it's widespread, and it's what actually leads to poor performance. It's what leads to less productivity in companies. It's that's, not the worker yes. bees. It's the management that's always the problem. That's, 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 that's right, and that's true, and that's why recently,
2: a couple of years ago, change, I saw the top... Direction and a boat that is as big as I'm not going to turn on a dime. Still a completely messed up place. Okay, well I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to either defend or, or 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 accuse. I'm just saying that a business of that magnitude doesn't turn on a dime, and in fact, the direction has been turned around because they changed
1: the CEO, the person at the helm. It's a little bit like mafia organizations. Uh, you know, you, you know. Uh, they, people who are sociopaths pick other sociopaths. They don't, you know, a sociopath doesn't want somebody who is a nice guy or a nice woman because uh, they're not going to follow the orders. They're not going to do what they're supposed to do. So uh, you know, when, when you have an organization that's already kind of run by people who have no empathy, uh, I, I, it's pretty hard to change because they're going to select people who also don't have empathy like them. I, I, I actually lost a position this way. Uh, personally. I I was a little too empathic. I was a little too this. I didn't realize the sharks I was dealing with. And, you know, that led to my being uh, fired.
4: So what is the solution? Because management has to review the performance, right? So what do they have to do then? I
1: I think the solution is to really develop a pure uh, meritocracy in, in some kind of accountability for people at the top.
0: So this this has been a conversation about crisis. We got we got a little bit uh, d- swayed there. We went down a path about uh, which actually we might we might take a, uh, to the next level in the next episode, uh, which which can be about essentially the bad people in organizations and bad cultures and what what uh, how to avoid basically icky work politics and icky work people and stuff like that so uh this conversation started with with crisis and um joe made the important point which i'll just kind of end on which is um organizations should understand and think about how people behave in crisis because that is a context that we all operate in this is the apps check podcast uh thanks for listening
6: for anybody who's more interested in learning about how to manage conflict more productively and how to not get so triggered and fall off the wagon, running away, becoming a steamroller or a doormat, you can talk to me at rachelalexandria.com and I actually have a program called Power Embodied that teaches you exactly how to have, engage in and have productive, successful conflict to move you forward and that's rachelalexandria.com power.
3: You have been listening to the AppsJack podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at appsjack.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to abstract.com slash meetup to get more information on this month's topic in the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of AppsJack Podcast. This has been a Seatown Media Production. Find out more at ctownmedia.com. S-e-a
1: hyphentownmedia.com.